0: Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. You can paint a number
2: of nightmare scenarios and say we have to be ready for all. We can't afford to be ready for all of them. There's not enough money in the world to be ready for all of them. So if you say, if I can show you a scenario that we're not ready for right now, then our defense policy is failing. Well, we may as well pack it up because we're always going to be failing. Also, I think that way of looking at things leads us to try and spend our way into a problem. What I would like us to come to is a more realistic idea of how we deter our adversaries beyond the notion that if we can't guarantee overwhelming dominance, then we're done. Because I don't think we can guarantee overwhelming dominance. I don't think we have the money. And I think the world is entirely too complicated to get to that point. So what should we do? Alliances have never been more important. We need partners, and we've been doing this. This is part of what was working against the caliphate. And I also think that we need to find other ways to deter our adversaries. It doesn't just have to be military. International institutions can help us deter our adversaries. Uh, The State Department can help us deter our adversaries.
0: Russia. We have not been successful at deterring them through the use of sanctions. How do we do that, do you think?
1: Well, I
2: think we at least need to begin to counter their disinformation campaign. And it's a real hindrance that the president of the United States of America refuses to acknowledge what Russia did in 2016. The president is pushing Russian propaganda in Ukraine. I've had an increasing number of people tell me that as they're trying to make democracy look weak, they're succeeding. And there's people who say, a thousand years from now, historians will look back on democracy as a 300-year blip in human history. Will it survive? I think the stakes are that important.
0: Adam Smith, a Democrat, is a United States representative from Washington's 9th Congressional District. He is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. During his nearly 23 years in Congress, Adam has also served on the House Intelligence Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is one of the leading voices on foreign policy and national security in the Democratic Party. Adam and I just sat down on location on Capitol Hill to discuss his views on the many issues we often discuss on this show. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Congressman, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Intelligence Matters. Thank you. I'd love to start with some questions about your background, if I might. You were the youngest person to be elected in the state legislature of Washington?
2: The tactical stat was that when I was elected in 1990, at that time, I was the youngest state senator okay. in the country. Age 25? Yes. Was politics something that you
0: always wanted to do? Where did, that, where did that come from?
2: Well, I always had an interest in it, but the main place it came from was, you know, my father was a ramp serviceman at United Airlines, and he was the secretary treasurer of his union. And he had an interest in politics, um, and he sort of pushed me into it at a young age. I had some interest. On the other hand, I was painfully introverted um, at that particular point. So I was interested, but how's that going to work with my basic personality? Yeah. Um, but really what ultimately got me over that was my connection to the community I grew up in in SeaTac. I got involved in a lot of local issues, local democratic politics, but also um, you know, just passing the um, school bond and you know working on a bunch of stuff locally and that sort of got me exposed to it and then an opportunity to came up came up to, to run for for the Senate seat when I was young
0: do you consider yourself still an introvert um
2: it's an interesting question because um, I certainly am yes I, I would say yes I've I've you know you don't change that basic personality but I' figured out how to deal um, with some of those it's more than we need to get into at this point. Yeah. But I had issues yeah. as a child. Yeah. I was adopted. I had family, you know, all kinds of different things that I've, I've worked my way through now. But that basic personality is still there. Yeah. I've just learned to work around it.
0: Congressman, you've been a member of the House Armed Services Committee for as long as you've been in Congress, 23 years. You've also served on the House Intelligence Committee. Um, you served on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Where does that interest in foreign affairs come from?
2: Well, I've always been interested in, in, in politics and history, you know, sort of how how do things work? Um, how does government work? And, you know, when you – and certainly the U.S. has plenty of those issues. But I've always been interested in international issues. I mean just the history of how countries came to be, conflicts came to be, how they've worked out those conflicts. So I've always been interested in foreign policy, gosh, since I was, was in high school. But ultimately from a congressional career standpoint, when I was in the state senate, I chaired the judiciary committee. So, you know, my orientation was not foreign policy. But Joint Base Lewis-McChord, or as it was known then, um, Fort Lewis and McCord Air Force Base, were in the heart of my district when I got elected in 96. And that got me onto the Armed Services Committee and started me down the national security road. Congressman, perhaps we can
0: talk a little bit about oversight, how do you see the job of overseeing the Pentagon? What do you see your role as? What are your objectives?
2: main objective is the safe, well, a couple of objectives. One is to make sure the taxpayer dollars are spent as wisely and efficiently as possible, and that we are meeting the national security needs of the country, and that the DOD is doing that. And it's, it's I believe, a cooperative effort. Um, as you, actually, you're you worked in another area of government, um, but you know, then there's tension there. You know, sure. DoD wants to do what it wants to do, but I also believe there is a basic respect at DoD for the idea of the oversight role the Congress must play, and there's certainly a respect on our side for DoD's role to protect the country and institute our national defense policy. And you know, we are the people's representatives. You know, basically, the Department of Defense exists at at the will of the people and so we try to keep dod accountable to those people because we are responsible to the electorate well i guess i'd put it better you know the the electorate um, holds us accountable and part of what they want us to do is hold the pentagon accountable because they're spending roughly 740 billion dollars a year mm-hmm. of taxpayer money and i and this there's a tension here it's an incredibly important process and i do think that there has been a concentration of executive power and an erosion of legislative power that, in general. Yes, that I think is is a problem, particularly when you're talking about something as important as national security and the use of the United States military and the spending of $740 billion. Um, to the extent that Congress doesn't have an adequate say in that, um, you further divide the Pentagon from the people in a way that I think is problematic.
0: Why has that occurred? Why has that erosion taken place, do you think?
2: You know... Um, as a general rule, there is, you know, I, I would say a tendency to have the power. If you're at the Pentagon, as much as they have respect for the process, they would also like to be able to do what they, they do when they want to do it and not have a bunch of members of Congress who may or may not know anything about it interfere with them. Um, and I think there's tension there. There's tension when elected officials try to politicize it. You know, bring the Secretary of Defense over, and then try to make some politically embarrassing argument just for the sake of their political interests. And I, those tensions are always there. I would say the reason it's become more concentrated is because democracy has become more difficult uh, and more complicated. Members of Congress. I mean, there was no internet. There was, you know, no cable television. Now you have to deal with a lot more constituents. It's harder to deal with all of that, you know, incoming from constituents, and still do the oversight. Um, it's become a more difficult and more complicated job because of the democratization of power and the free flow of information.
0: And then from the perspective of what you do every day on the committee, in terms of the issues you look at, in terms of how far you look out, in terms of the strategic and tactical, how would you characterize what it is you focus on every day?
2: Um, I think the a huge part of it is efficiently spending the money. So trying to figure out you know, how how can we get the most out of the tax dollars we spend? You know, part of that competition is a big deal to me. You know, Making sure that as we're sending out contracts, there are that there's adequate competition. Making sure that the Pentagon is aware of all of the options, the vendors that are out there that potentially could give them a better deal or a better product. I, I think that, that's a huge part of what we do. And another huge part of what we do is to make sure that the troops are taken care of. Mm-hmm. And the way I always like to put this is whatever we decide the mission is, we have to make sure that the troops are adequately trained and equipped to carry out that mission. And I think it's a huge mistake for us, whether it's DOD or Congress or the White House, to say, well, we want to do all of this. This should be our national security mission. But then we don't have the money. And so we put our troops in the position of having to do more than they are trained and equipped to do. So matching the mission with the force and the basic you know, money that we spend on it is a, is a huge part of the challenge as well and making sure the troops are taken care of.
0: So, Congressman, you said today that you're making progress on the National Defense Authorization Act. And I was hoping you could tell our listeners what that is and why it's so important.
2: Sure. As a starting point, it is the policy for the Department of Defense and that important aspect of our national security. Every year, we authorize everything the DOD does. You know, the, the equipment they buy, the missions they take on, the way the forces are distributed. So once a year, we pass a defense bill that says for, in this case, FY 2020, here is what the Pentagon is going to spend and here's their policy. Um, and it impacts a whole lot of different things. And one big issue we're working on this year is... Um, Housing for military members. There's been a lot of uh, mold and problems with the privatized housing. So we're putting in a bill of rights to help help protect them. At the same time, we're talking how many F-35s do we buy? How many F-15s do we buy? Do we buy any F-15s? You know, updating programs. So it is the national security DOD policy for the year. The other thing that has happened with the defense bill is because the legislative process has become so cumbersome, it's one of the few few bills that passes every year. So a lot of other committees try to hitch on to our bill a whole bunch of different issues because it is some years literally the only policy bill. And we went years without an Intelligence Authorization Act. Exactly. In yeah. fact, the Intelligence Authorizing Act this year is in the defense authorizing bill. <laughs> That's one of the things we picked up because they couldn't get it through the Senate. So that's the other role that the, the, that the National Defense Authorizing Act plays.
0: So we're taping this on a Thursday, and we're going to run this next Wednesday. So there may or may not be an agreement on right. this year's NDAA by then. But can you talk a little bit about what some of the, the big issues – you talked about housing already – some of the big issues you're going to tackle?
2: Yeah, I think some of the biggest issues – there's a lot of stuff in space – Big controversy is over the desire of some to create a space force, basically to take space out from under the direct control of the Air Force and make it its own kind of equivalent to the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is technically under the Navy, but it's also its own separate thing do we need to place that emphasis? And there are a lot of issues surrounding space that have spent a lot of time. There's also been a lot of issues surrounding um, the chemical PFAS, which is in um, firefighting foam, which the Department of Defense uses, and has now been found to pollute the groundwater in a lot of places. It's not just a DOD thing. PFAS is elsewhere. Um, so there's been, that, that's that been a, a big, huge issue that we, we've been wrestling with. There's a lot of policy on what do we do about Guantanamo. We're down to 40 inmates down there. I know this is something you're very familiar with. Um, it's costing an enormous amount of money. Where do we go forward with that policy? There's been concern about congressional oversight of of military uh, kinetic action, going to war. You know, how, how do we make sure that the president comes to Congress and if he wants to go to war with Iran? That's been a, a major area. And there's a lot of programs. I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with the cost overruns of the Ford-class carrier. How do we handle that? How do we make sure we keep building enough submarines? We are, as you know, recapitalizing the nuclear force. Um, there's a contract to be awarded on that for the next generation ICBM. We're working on the B-21, which is a replacement. So, yeah. Can you I say whether on. you're
0: going to authorize a Space Force or...?
2: Uh, That's not 100 percent clear. It's kind of funny. I mean, as as we speak and I can say this because this isn't going to air until when Wednesday next Wednesday. Wednesday, Okay, it'll be done by then. But as we speak, literally, um, the president is being presented um, with a sort of here's the defense bill with the Space Force and with a couple other things that we want. And I'm hoping he'll say deal. Um, And then that's what we'll do. And if that happens, I will know the parameters of the bill. And, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. Um, It seems at this point like a 50-50 call whether or not the Space Force is in the final bill. They're very contrary. There's a lot of people for it. There's a lot of people against it. And it's bipartisan, you know, on on both sides.
0: Congressman, I'd love to run through some questions about military capabilities. And maybe the place to start is with the most recent National Defense Strategy Commission, which I was a member of. And as you know, one of the co-chairs, Eric Edelman, he was on our podcast and laid out a pretty stark picture of what that report said, and it was pretty stark. Yes. Let me read you like three sentences from it. America's military superiority has eroded to a dangerous degree. Many of the skills necessary to plan for and conduct military operations against capable adversaries have atrophied. The U.S. military might struggle to win or perhaps lose a war against China or Russia. Did you agree with those findings? Did they strike you as realistic and make sense?
2: No, I don't agree with those findings. Um, And it's kind of hard. I don't so much necessarily disagree with the findings as I find that they set an unrealistic expectation about what our U.S. military is supposed to do. You could have read those same findings at virtually any time in U.S. history except perhaps in the 80s when we spent an enormous amount of money. But even then, you know, you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what's coming. You know, we had this massive military. We weren't ready for 9-11. You never know what's coming up. So I think part of the problem within the Defense Committee and within DOD in general is you can paint a number of nightmare scenarios all right, and say we have to be ready for all. We can't afford to be ready for all of them. There's not enough money in the world to be ready for all of them. So if you say, if I can show you a scenario that we're not ready for right now, then our defense policy is failing, well, we may as well pack it up because we're always going to be failing. Also, I think that way of looking at things leads us to try and spend our way into a problem. All right? We're not going to have enough. There, there's no way in this era, at this time, given how complicated the world has become. You know, back in the 80s, we didn't have to worry about Al-Qaeda and ISIS, okay? Um, China was nowhere near where they are today. Um, It was a much more manageable world. What I would like us to come to is a more realistic idea of how we deter our adversaries beyond the notion that if we can't guarantee overwhelming dominance, then we're done. Because I don't think we can guarantee overwhelming dominance. I don't think we have the money And I think the world is entirely too complicated to get to that point. So what should we do? Number one, alliances have never been more important. We need partners. And we've been doing this. This is part of what was working against the caliphate. We partnered with Iraq. We partnered with the SDF and with the Kurds and very low footprint. Coalition of nations. Exactly. And we didn't lose a single American life in defeating the caliphate. ISIS is not defeated. The caliphate has has been crushed. ISIS is still there. But we defeated the caliphate without losing a single American life because we were able to work with partners. I think that needs to be an important part of our strategy as, as we go forward. And I also think that we need to find other ways to deter our adversaries. It doesn't just have to be military. Um, international institutions can help us deter our adversaries. Uh, the state department can help us deter our adversaries. You know, we're always saying that, you know, if we did it, everyone's supposed to be really freaked out about these war games that they hold about. Imagine we went to war with China in the South China Sea, you know, we, we wouldn't win. It's like, well, you know, the idea that if China came over to the U S and tried to beat us, they wouldn't win either. Um, it's hard to win a war on the road against a major adversary. Should that really be our goal? Or should our goal be what policies can we put in place so that we don't go to war with China in the South China Sea? And, you know, I worry that we get these bloviated ideas of what the defense budget has to be. We don't achieve those objectives and we wind up with a national security policy that our resources can't possibly meet. And then we are in that scenario where we are asking the men and women in our armed forces to perform a task that we don't have the money or equipment for them to perform. So I worry about that sort of hyperbolic language.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion With Congressman Adam Smith
2: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion While striving to protect, defend And save what you believe in Every single day so what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But You'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: So, Congressman, what do you think the U.S. military should be capable of?
2: First of all, it's important to have a surge capacity, um, and I think we underestimate that. We certainly weren't ready for World War II, but we surged and we got ready, and ultimately we took advantage of it. So I think, number one, the industrial base matters a lot. Do we, do we maintain the core capabilities of building the ships, the planes, and increasingly, by the way, the artificial intelligence, the command and control centers, um, you know, the, the cyber strength? Do we have that ability to rise to meet an adversary when they come at us? So making sure that we maintain a strong domestic economy, a strong domestic infrastructure, and a strong industrial base is as important as anything. And I think we need to consider that when we're looking at what programs to to, to fund and move forward. Then I think our military should absolutely be capable of deterring terrorist groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. And I think we've done a pretty decent job of that. Um, As you know, I mean, you were there when we were, you know, sort of building up after 9/11 it doesn't and actually take a lot of capability at the end of the day no it really does but it takes a ton of coordination yes, yes. Um, and it's really impressive what what we've done now when it comes to sort of you know there's the great you know, here's here's our national security threat environment which is basically Russia China North Korea Iran transnational terrorists okay so how do we contain those threats I talked about the last one the other four I think there's a bunch of different strategies I think our military needs to be strong enough to deter North Korea so that North Korea knows that if they engage militarily anywhere in the neighborhood that we will, crush them. I think we need Russia to know that if they mess in Eastern Europe, we are going to make the cost higher than they want to absorb. I think we need to have an adequate nuclear deterrent that tells every other country in the world, don't you dare even think about using a nuclear weapon because we will obliterate you. And I think we need need a strong enough military to help deter China from hostile acts in South Asia. But with China, I think, frankly, partners in the region are vastly more important than our military strength. It's going to matter more if South Korea and Japan and India and Thailand and Vietnam and all those countries are strong enough um, to have a united front in deterring China than the threat that will send our entire military um, over to go to war with China. But I think all of that can be achieved in a more manageable way. I mean, for instance, we've had this requirement since I've been in Congress for I think it's 350 ships in the Navy. There's no realistic scenario by which we're ever able to afford to. Well, I think the 350 ship in the Navy led to the to the the LCS. Hmm. okay, which, you know, and secretary former secretary of the navy now um spencer and i used to joke about it i I have this analogy that i picked up a long time ago for you know the problem is when you try to make something that does everything it's like a spork Mm -hmm. Um, it's not a very good spoon and it's not a very good fork it can't really do anything but you know we wanted to get to 350 ships the lcs was cheaper than a destroyer we could build more of them and then we can count more ships so aren't we better off Because we have more ships? Well, no. Um, You set those unrealistic uh, objectives. So I think we need to be more realistic about how we project power, and I think we need to really aggressively build alliances.
0: So if you take your view of what we need to be able to do, where are we today versus that view?
2: Well— one of my ways of looking at the world is I am nowhere near as hyperbolic and paranoid as most people. Um, and it's not that I'm unaware of the threats. It's just that I always go from the standpoint of this is the way the world is. And you know, there are no guarantees, as near as I can tell. Um, we're not going to be able to build a military that guarantees that we'll never be be protected. Um, I think, well, we did have a real readiness crisis, even on a more modest goal because of Iraq and Afghanistan, because all that we had to pull from all over the world to deal with those two issues. Um, we undermined our readiness elsewhere. But we have really rebuilt that since we reduced our presence, uh, since well, we got out of Iraq and now we have a small presence there and we've reduced our presence in Afghanistan. I think we're making real progress I and mean, we still got a ways, little ways to go to get back to, to a decent readiness frame. But again, the reason we got into that, right? This crisis is because, you know, we were too ambitious in our military goals for both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, we didn't work with part- Afghanistan. It's a different conversation. But uh, and I think we're I think we're on stronger footing now than we've been in the last five or six years.
0: Another issue I want to ask you about is nuclear weapons. You have a particularly interesting view, I think, on nuclear weapons and love to have you share
2: that. Sure. And this comes back to the, you know, how do we deter our adversaries but be able to afford all the things we need to do? I mean, going back to that rather stark portrait that was portrayed in the um, defense review, um, you know, if you believe that – and don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that we are vulnerable. It's just that <laughs> being alive makes you vulnerable. To imagine that you won't be, um, it's a matter of managing those vulnerabilities or, as they always say at at the Department of Defense, managing risk. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. So what is our nuclear arsenal supposed to do? It is supposed to deter any adversary from ever using a nuclear weapon. And that's number one. People who start talking about how we can use our nuclear weapons to deter non-nuclear threats, I think, are dead wrong. And I think that's a huge policy mistake um, to rely on nuclear weapons and think that we would ever be the country that would strike first with nuclear weapons. And then my position is that we don't need as many nuclear weapons as we have in order to deter our adversaries. And I always use China as the example. China has less than 300 nuclear weapons. And basically, and forgive me, I don't always speak in the proper policy language, uh, China's basic policy is we have enough nuclear weapons to seriously mess you up if you screw with us. So don't. okay? And I think getting into this calculation of, well, if they launch these and we launch those and we – no. Make it clear. And I – think that it is very clear with the U.S. currently having something like 4,000 nuclear warheads. And I want to maintain that power. I just think – sorry, I don't think we need 4,000. Um, I don't think it needs to go down to sub 300 either. But I think as we project out, where can we save money in the defense budget? Well, when I look at the terrorist threat, I don't want to to save money by reducing our special ops guys, or you know, reducing the the outreach we're doing in the world to confront that threat. Um, I I think having a robust navy is important to be able to deter Iran um, and and China. Um, there's a lot of areas where I don't want to save money, and but but given our budget deficit. Given all of the needs, if you don't have any area where you're willing to save money, then you don't have a plan. And I think in nuclear weapons, we can meet our objectives of nuclear deterrence, which are incredibly important for less money than the nuclear posture review ponders. And I know that there's bipartisan opposition to me on this. Um, The Obama administration was the one who put the nuclear posture review out. The Trump administration sort of ramped up a little bit further. But I, I just – I don't think we need that many nuclear weapons to to serve the deterrent effect that they're supposed to serve.
0: Where do you think we should go in the INF Treaty?
2: <sighs> I think – well, the INF Treaty is gone now. Um, I think we need to renegotiate and I think it's perfectly – and this is a broader issue. We are in a very dangerous point right now in the world. Um, this is sort of like when the Soviet Union first developed nuclear weapons and we developed them and they were moving. And there was no it was the wild, wild west with the power to destroy the entire globe. But then Nixon and other, we started to negotiate to say, OK, we don't want to you know, terminate the planet here. So let's have an open dialogue about what our capabilities are so that we don't go down the Dr. Strange glove route um, and miscalculate now that. Soviet Union fell apart, and we all thought end of history, whatever. That turned out not to be correct. Um, now Russia is rising again. They're building more nuclear weapons. China is now a major player on missiles. They weren't part of the INF Treaty. Um, they are rapidly developing missile technology. And on top of that, quantum computing is out there, okay, which potentially, as it's been explained to me, can basically render any encryption irrelevant, right. all right? AI is leading to all manner of capabilities, hypersonic weapons. We've got all these weapons that are game changers in terms of how you're going to be able to defend yourself. We need a new arms control regime. China, Russia, and the U.S. need to get together and say, the risk of miscalculation as all of these new and incredibly powerful or what would be the word here, game-changing weapon systems are available, we need to better understand our capabilities so that we can adequately we, – we can be confident in our own deterrence and confident that you can't overcome our deterrence so that there's not that miscalculation. I think we need to get back into the room and start negotiating. And
0: that dialogue just isn't happening to you.
2: No, it's not happening. And this is frustrating. We have tried in the defense bill to insert a requirement for that dialogue, and we have been resisted. And I'm not saying what the outcome has to be. I just think it's incredibly important that we start, start talking. It's like our conflict with Iran now. We've got this maximum pressure campaign. I think there's a wisdom behind that. Iran is having an incredibly malign influence in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. And I think putting pressure on them to stop that is well worth it. All right? But they view it as an existential threat. So they're going to start lashing out to survive. And how are they going to lash out? How are we going to respond? There's no communication that I'm aware of. And I've looked between Iran and the U.S. I guess Japan is occasionally a, a go-between. Um, I just think it's really important to, it's important to understand right. your adversaries. Right. And talk to them.
0: Yeah. So maybe just run through, Chairman, in the last few minutes we have here, some issues and get your reaction, substantive issues and get sure. your reaction. China, how do you think we should be positioning ourselves vis-a-vis a rising China, both strategically and militarily?
2: be very present in the region so that the the other countries in that region don't feel like they have to bend bend to the bully, um, that China can't bully them, that they've got another reliable partner in the region. I think by and large, we're doing that. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. I also think that China is a competitor. I, I don't see them as an existential threat. They need us I mean, to begin with, we owe them like $3 trillion. I think they'd kind of like to be paid. Um, You know, they don't want to see us, you know, completely collapse. They're going to compete with us economically. I do think we need to be very aggressive about stopping all of the, you know, intellectual property theft that they're doing and and, you know, try to pull them closer into a rules-based society. And the last thing I'm concerned about is the degree to which China sort of links up with Russia in favor of pushing autocracy. China didn't used to be sort of an exporter of their right. philosophy. Right. It's starting to look like they are. Now. They are. Yeah. And, and I still believe in freedom. I believe in political freedom and economic freedom. And if China is out there in Africa and Latin America and the Middle East and everywhere else trying to undermine political and economic freedom, I think that will inevitably lead to a less stable, less prosperous world. And we need to make sure that we we contain their ability to do that.
0: Russia and... The deterrence of russia in what we call the gray zone right including what they did to us in 2016 yep. the 2016 election we have not been successful at deterring them through the use of sanctions how do we do that do you think
2: well i think we at least need to begin to counter their disinformation campaign and it's a real hindrance that the president of the united states of america to this date refuses to acknowledge what russia did in 2016 um, and in many ways, the whole Ukraine issue, you know, the president is pushing Russian propaganda in Ukraine, helping them with their disinformation campaign. Now, many – just about every Republican I talk to says, well, we, we know Russia's a threat. We know Russia did it in 2016. OK, well, what are we doing about it? Not enough. We have encountered it. And I do worry – that, you know, there are many different aspects of president Trump's foreign policy that are troubling on a whole series of levels. But taking a step back and just saying, well, let's presume that he has a plan other than just looking after his own business interests. What is that plan? That plan seems to emphasize he doesn't like alliances. He wants the U.S. to be less involved in the world. And he's fond of autocrats. That's a problem. That enables Russia to continue to do what they've done to undermine our democracy, undermine our influence in the world, and push kleptocracy and autocracy. Um, I need to come up with better words for that. But anyway, And, and the economic piece of this is crucial. Their economy is based on a few folks at the top gobbling up all the money in the most corrupt way possible and then hiding it all over the world, including, by the way, in high-end New York real estate. But that's another story. Um, That's an economic system that is a recipe for disaster, all right? We need to counter that, um, not let them push that message. And I've had an increasing number of people tell me that as they're trying to make democracy look weak, they're succeeding. And there's people who say a thousand years from now, historians will look back on democracy as a 300 year blip in human history. Will it survive? Uh, I think the stakes are that important. You know, it's having working right now to try and pass the defense bill. I was quoted in it in a way that I wouldn't like to be recorded, so I won't say it. Democracy is difficult. Let me put it... I heard dif- what you said. Yes, it's actually sorry. very good. Yes. Uh, you know, because, you know, I'm trying to pass the defense bill and I've described it as it's like space invaders, okay? All right, these five people have this problem. Okay, I'll go talk to them. Okay, well, we're good. Okay. And then, yeah, somebody else has a problem. Okay, well, I got to go talk to him now and then I got to go talk to her. And an autocracy, it's like, yeah, he has a problem. Tell him to get over it. You know, so it's hard, but it's better than having a system That is unaccountable, doesn't face competition, doesn't face criticisms, because inevitably inevitably, systems like that atrophy. They get lazy. They don't get better. They stop looking after people and eventually people get tired of it and they revolt. And we see stuff like we had in the the first half of the 20th century. So, yeah, not to put – and here I was saying that I'm not the hyperbolic type.
0: (laughs) I know, Uh, I know.
2: But, you know, I think we can prevent all of that. But it is a major impediment that we have a president who doesn't pay any attention to any of this. He's got his own agenda that is unrelated to 75 years of effort to build the international institutions, to build the respect for political and economic freedom, to stabilize and make the world prosperous.
0: So you mentioned Iran earlier, and and I thought you painted it perfectly. Misbehavior in the region, significant. We need to do something about that and the things we're doing about it in terms of putting pressure on them, they see as an existential threat, so they're lashing out. How should we deal with them?
2: Um, I think for the moment um, we need to stay the course. I don't think we should have pulled out of the JCPOA because, you know— we're going to be better able to corner them if the world is with us and the world was not with us on pulling out of the JCPOA. I also think it makes it more likely that Iran will go back down the road of building a nuclear weapon. And I've heard a lot of very smart people say things that are completely wrong about the JCPOA. They're like, well, and only you know, after 10 years, they could go ahead and build a weapon. That's not what it says. OK, that agreement was a lot stronger than the president and a whole lot of other people have said it is. And giving up on that is a problem. But what's done is done. I think at this point, we need to continue the maximum pressure campaign, show restraint, don't blow the region up. But then the other critical part about this, and I met with King Abdullah in Jordan, and he articulated this very well, limiting Iran's money is one way to help make it more difficult for them to mess with Lebanon and Syria and all these other places, but they're still going to do it. They're going to fight, you know, they'll starve their people before they give up on this. The only way to stop Iran is to go to Yemen, go to Iraq and give them a better deal. Okay. Cause what Iran, Iran is basically mob boss politics. All right. We'll give you, we'll give you guns. We'll give you money in exchange for doing what we want you to do. Well, if those people had a different offer, a better life if the iraq government was functioning if yemen wasn't a you know massive leban if you actually built a decent government built economic opportunity then iran would not have the fertile field to go in and sow discord when people are desperate they turn to things like this so we need to keep working you know syria is a more complicated issue but certainly in iraq we got some partners there. You know, we we can work to try to help develop a better government. Um, same in Lebanon. Same in Yemen. You know, drain the swamp, if you will. Don't give them a place to go to take advantage of people who have been backed into a corner. Um, and I think that part of policy has been has been lacking. We're not doing very well on diplomacy under the Trump administration. And one, I know we're probably over time here, but one final point. Um, biggest thing I encountered overseas. Our partners no longer trust us and they don't want to work with us. And it's, it's for a different reason than you might think. They know. They're sitting down. You're the ambassador to whatever country from the United States. And you sit down and they talk to you and you make a deal. The next morning, there's a tweet that undoes it. Now, our partners are saying, why am I talking to you? You got no power. Okay, you obviously don't speak for the United States of America because the president's going to undo it tomorrow. And even if he doesn't now, people don't trust our interlocutors um, because they don't think they speak for the country. They think Trump just tweets and that's the policy. We are really gutting our diplomatic capability because of that.
0: Just one more question, Congressman, the morale of our troops. How would you characterize it?
2: You know, I think I well, if you're talking if you're talking about the troops in the State Department, yeah, yeah, <laughs> really bad troops at an all-time level, Yeah, low. it is bad. I think within the military it's pretty it's been tough, okay? And you know, I'd never served in the military, so I, but we've been at war in one place or another for 18 years now, and that's a big drain. But I think the morale's pretty good. Um, and I, I think they're, they're doing their job. Certainly there are problems. There's a strong feeling, you know, 1% of the population serves in the military. Does the other 99% care? But I think they do. I mean, increasingly, you've seen programs to help veterans from private businesses, from charities, from others. I I think the morale is okay. You know, I think they're they're worried about all the stuff we've talked about today like everybody else is. You know, what's the direction of the U.S. government? You know, we are in a period of high political conflict. And I'll tell you, if we can pass a defense bill and fund the government through an appropriations process, that'll help. Because I do hear from a lot of military people, it's like, you know, if the government gets shut down... I'm not getting paid. That's a problem. You know, if you guys could, like, do your job, fund the government, pass the defense bill, I think they'd feel a lot better about the country that they're, they're putting their lives on the line for.
0: Did you get some reaction from the Pentagon on the president's intervention in the Gallagher case?
2: Yeah. <laughs> they're concerned. Yeah. And look, and, and, and the Secretary of Defense that I'm, I've known, Mark, for a long time um, in different capacities, and we have a good relationship, he's right. The chain of command um, is, you know, the president's at the top of that. And ultimately, he can do whatever he wants to do. He wants to wake up tomorrow morning and say that, you know, the the mess at Fort Hood should only serve bacon. He can do that. OK. He'd be an idiot if he did that. Um, but he certainly could. But I think in the case of military discipline by him doing what he's done he has undermined the chain of command in the following sense if you're out there in the field and you don't think you have to listen to your superior because you know that you can go on Fox News and get the president to side with you over the person who's commanding you that's a problem yeah it breaks down the entire principle of the military of chain of command And I know he's at the top, but if he does this, it's, you know, in my own office, I've got quite a few people who work for me, you know, and if my staff director is given an instruction to go do this and everyone's working on it, and then I happen to be wandering by um, and say, oh, no, I think that's wrong. I think you ought to do it this way. I'm undermining my own chain of command because I'm not empowering the people who I need to do the job. Congressman, thank you so
0: much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank
2: you. It's great to see you again and uh, appreciate the chance.
0: That was Adam Smith. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast